the slides will be posted so you can go over these questions later on. You just won't have me talking while you're trying to think, going over them. Okay, so for this one we had the answer being me scattering when photons are scattered by particles that are approximately the same wavelength. And then the other form of scattering is preferential or Rayleigh scattering. So let's see what those actually are to review. So the preferential or scatters certain wavelengths better is called Rayleigh scattering. And what's happening here is you have particles in the atmosphere and you have different wavelengths of light being scattered in different ways by each of the particles. So blue, because it's that very short, smaller wavelength, gets scattered or bounced around more than red. And that's why we have our blue skies and our red sunsets. It's Rayleigh scattering. The other type of scattering is me scattering. And me scattering is when the wavelengths of the scattered light are approximately comparable to the particle size. And typically, if you think about this, this is why we have things like white clouds. The light is no longer being preferentially scattered by color, and therefore white light is being scattered basically in all directions. So this brings us to, uh, to another question which is about milk. So what do milk and clouds have in common? Well, milk is white because of which kind of scattering? Okay, is it Rayleigh scattering, me scattering, preferential, uniform, or Raman scattering? So I don't think that was a, typical, a very hard one. The answer is B. It is me scattering. And what's happening is white light, so all the wavelengths of light in milk, is being scattered off of large fat particles. So if you ever notice, the, the higher the percentage milk, like if you have the 10% milk or the 2% milk, those tend to be richer and whiter in color. And skim milk, if you have 1% or 0% or 0.1%, tends to look a little bit more watery, and sometimes it looks even a little like bluish. And that's because there's not as many of those large fat particles in the skim milk, so there is some preferential scattering of the blue light going on, and it comes to your eye. So this recaps what we talked about last time. Let's move on to something new and something certainly prettier than looking at a glass of milk. We're going to talk about the aurora or aurorae 
or um, aurora borealis. So some of you may have been fortunate enough to see this live. I never have. It's something that I would love to do. It's on the bucket list. But for now, we'll have to be content with some of these pictures here. But before we start getting into auroral dynamics, I'm curious what you feel aurora are caused by. So aurora are caused by what? Which do you think? Are they caused by infrared radiation? Or is it extreme heating and incandescence in the atmosphere? Uh, is it charged particles striking Earth's magnetic field? Bioluminescent airborne bacteria. We had those beaches that, that were glowing as a result of dinoflagellates. Is it something like that that's causing aurora? Or is it all of the above? more seconds. So when it comes to aurora, they are indeed caused by C, charged particles striking Earth's magnetic field. So what is that and what does that look like? Okay. So to try and understand this better, we'll take a short foray into Earth's magnetic field. Earth basically has a shield. You can think of it as a shield which, which basically protects it against very high energy charged particles that are shot at it essentially from the sun. So the magnetic field is something that arises, this protective sheath around the Earth, that arises due to motion of electrons, essentially, in the outer core of the Earth. Now, if you think about electricity and magnetism, in the whole course, we've talked about EM and EM waves, the electromagnetic spectrum. So when you have moving electrons and a current, changing electric field causes, induces a magnetic field, and vice versa. So what's happening in the core is we have this molten iron in the outer core, which is a liquid. It's circulating around fast. It has that metallic property of having this sea of electrons so they can move around freely. This is creating a current, which in, in turn is creating a magnetic field, which branches out from the magnetic axis of the Earth. In terms of the axis that the field is centered around, you'll notice the field has two lobes. That's the same kind of con uh, configuration we have in a bar magnet with a south pole and a north pole. And it's al symmetric along the magnetic axis, which is slightly removed from the geographic axis of the planet. So it's slightly different from direct geographic north and geographic south. And we won't get into it too much in this course, but it is really interesting, one of the properties of the magnetic field, because of how it's generated as essentially a product of fluid flow in the core, 
When that fluid flow changes, if it slows down or speeds up or changes direction, the magnetic field also changes. And it can wander around the globe, move around, um, switch poles, basically, and do a lot of sort of wild things. But the magnetic field moves around with time. So if you may have heard this, this is true. It, it moves around with time because of how the fluid in the outer core of the Earth is behaving. So let's take a quicker uh, look at that with the liquid outer core. So this is basically liquid molten iron. It's metallic. And at high temperatures, it's highly charged, moves around, generates a magnetic field. We have a spinning charged particle. And that particle produces these magnetic field lines. And basically, this is called a dynamo effect. So the Earth is rotating. The Earth is a geodynamo. It's rotating. It's got these charged particles which are spinning and creating this furnace inside of it, which is constantly regenerating itself, regenerating the energy, and sustaining our magnetic field, protecting life on our planet. There's lots of ways to model this magnetic field. And modeling it can be done by looking, studying fluid flows. And if you remember, a while ago, in probably about five lectures ago or so, I had mentioned that some work had been done on this at York. And the work also involved something that had a pretty color phenomena, basically. The work was building a sample model Earth, which was a sphere filled with water, and then injected with a biofluorescent dye, fluorazine. What had happened was, and I'll show you quickly in this uh, video here. This is the apparatus, and this happened here at York. Uh, it was built and constructed for a PhD project. Okay. Here is the model Earth. On either side, you see these black rollers. They're to stimulate, to sort of simulate tidal perturbation, how the moon pushes and pulls at the Earth. And you've got this water inside. You've got an inner core here. And this whole thing represents the outer core. Lights were turned off. And what you saw was the fluorazine dye moving in certain patterns like this. It would kind of move in a certain pattern, get a bunch of waves in a certain sense, in a certain direction, break down into chaos, and then build up again in the opposite sense. And this is exactly what's happening with Earth's magnetic field when we have polar wonder and magnetic field switching. So we can model this magnetic field by a fluid flow like this using a biofluorescent uh, That was a short aside. How does this all have to do with aurora? And how does this bring us back to understanding color? Well, we've talked about the magnetic field. And aurora is simply the magnetic field's interaction with the solar wind. So on the left, you have an image. Um, I think it's, it's a computer. 
a video of a solar prominence here. This is the sun. The sun uh, spits out sort of large solar flares and solar prominences. And what's happening when, when this occurs is the sun is mainly made of hydrogen and helium. With the intense heat, particles from the hydrogen, very highly excited, highly charged electrons and protons, are being spewed out. They're being spewed out continuously, and often in a stream or a hot sort of ionically, positively charged gas known as a plasma. Okay, so when you see the term plasma, it just means a stream of highly charged or ionized particles. It's a gas. So we're talking about mainly protons and electrons being spewed out from solar eruptions in the corona area of the sun toward Earth. So some sort of solar prominence like this, or very, very large solar flares, sometimes something happens called a coronal mass ejection. In other words, a huge chunk of mass is blown out of the corona. This creates this incredible wind, which bombards the Earth. Unfortunately for us, we have the magnetic field which shields us from its effects basically from getting fried. But unfortunately for satellites and space objects, they get the onslaught of these charged particles. So when you have a coronal mass ejection, you often say, oh, it's a geostorm, it's a geomagnetic storm. Well, all that's happening is the sun is having this coronal mass ejection. The stream of charged particles are moving from the sun towards the Earth. It usually takes two to four days. And basically knocking out electronics on our satellites. But it also does something else when you get these charged particles bombarding the Earth's magnetic field. So in terms of that interaction, the magnetic field has a weird shape. It's shaped by basically the solar wind. Assume that the sun is over here. This is Earth here. And the whole envelope that the magnetic field is made up of or encloses is called the magnetosphere. So that basically extends for hundreds of thousands of kilometers around Earth. And you'll notice that the sun, the solar wind, is blowing toward Earth here, constraining the magnetosphere in this sort of Bowshock region, and then basically tailing off. That's direct shaping by the solar wind. Now, what do you notice about this particular diagram here? Well, we have a big tail. We have an area here, but what do you have in the center? Notice where the poles occur in the magnetic field. The poles are where all of the magnetic field lines are converging, essentially going into the planet. So bearing that in mind and saying, knowing that aurora is the interaction of solar wind with the um, magnetic field, where do you think they may exist? So aurora mainly exist near the North Pole, near the South Pole. 
you know, bo both north and south poles, at mid and low latitudes, or at the equator. So aurora do pretty much mainly exist, C, near both the north and south poles, because it's, it's here that all the magnetic field lines converge and create this kind of circular aurora effect. And we'll see why in a moment. What's happening then with our magnetic field? The magnetic field basically catches and traps solar wind particles. So that you have solar wind particles being caught up in magnetic field lines and oscillating around them in spiral trajectories, bouncing from one end to the other end of the globe and back. So what happens when you get this emission of charged particles as a solar wind some of these particles will get trapped in a certain field line based on different energies and oscillate back and forth between the poles. And then when you have the field lines converging at the poles, where those particles eventually hit the atmosphere, they interact then with oxygen and nitrogen, which are main constituents of the atmosphere, and generate these beautiful, colorful displays. And why would that be? Well, think about what we've been talking about in the course with color all the time. Color interactions are essentially uh, photon emission. So these charged particles are coming in, exchanging energy with the atomic constituents at a certain altitude. And what's happening in those atoms, they are basically jumping down Electrons are jumping down energy levels, emitting a photon, and the photon will be either red or green, giving you these beautiful aurora. Let's, let's see that a little bit more visually. What do the colors look like? Well, there can be lots of different colors of aurora, but if you have these magnetic field lines intersecting at the poles, particles entering and colliding with the atmospheric particles. Of course, it depends. Colors generated depend on what's in the atmosphere. So typically, oxygen will give you green and yellow colors, whereas nitrogen gives you red and violet, and very rarely, sometimes, blue auroral colors. Which color you get, again, depends on this reaction. You have these photons entering, exciting the electrons up to another energy level. The electrons slowly get tired and jump back down to their original level, releasing a photon of a certain wavelength. And that all has to do with the atomic species and properties of the molecules and atoms at that height. 
So let's um, take a look at this particular video, which will explain a little bit more visually what's going on. force field around our planet. And now imagine that for billions of years, that force field has been protecting us from a beam of supercharged plasma that would otherwise wipe out life on Earth as we know it. Now you might think this is some kind of science fiction story, but it's all true. And it's what gives us this, the aurora. So the aurora is one of mankind's oldest mysteries. We've come up with some crazy theories of how to explain it along the way. Take Aristotle. He thought the aurora was the sky vomiting little bits of flames. But it wasn't until the 1600s that we figured out two key things that helped us explain the aurora. One, the Earth is really just one big magnet. And second, it turns out that the sun gives off a lot more than just light. Long before any sunlight hits Earth, it's born at the edge of the sun. And the edge of the sun, the corona, is a busy, beautiful place, full of churning whirlpools and plasma and huge magnetic arcs. All that action is constantly releasing waves of energized particles, creating what we call the solar wind. Now, a few days after leaving the sun, traveling at a whopping 400 kilometers per second, that blast of charged particles reaches Earth. But luckily, we've got a secret weapon on our side, Earth's swirling molten core. Our core is the key to life on Earth. It creates a magnetic force field around us that deflects the solar wind up and away making life down here much more enjoyable. Now because of that magnetic field, we have nice things like an atmosphere, and we're much less burned to a crisp thanks to wave after wave of planet sterilizing radiation. But despite all that, a tiny bit of that solar wind does hop on the magnetic field and ride it up or down to the Earth's poles. And that's where we get the auroras. When those energized particles smash into gases way up high in the atmosphere, they excite them, which means the gas atoms grab onto a bit of energy. But they don't stay excited for long. They give off that stored energy with a bright burst of light. Different atoms in our atmosphere each give off different colors. Excited oxygen is what gives off that familiar green and red that most of us think of when we hear aurora. But there's also nitrogen up there, and it can give off a really cool mix of red and blue light that makes the sky glow this incredible purplish pink. Now, we can only see this happening at night, but it's happening 24 hours a day, every day, every year. It's also happening on Saturn and Jupiter. Sometimes the sun takes that wind and turns it up to 11, and that can be a very dangerous sight to behold. Now, extreme solar storms called coronal mass ejections can erupt into space almost without warning, unleashing huge waves of charged particles. And if they happen to be pointed at Earth, then look out. Now these storms are incredibly powerful. Astronauts that are working outside of the Earth's magnetic field say that if you close your eyes during one of these solar storms, you'll see bright flashes of light from the charged particles reacting with the fluid inside your eye. And in 1859, a storm so powerful hit Earth that it powered a telegram from Boston to Portland, Maine, with the equipment unplugged. When those rare violent storms hit Earth's magnetic field and ride up to the polar atmosphere, we're treated to an aurora show like no other. Now, these images are more than just works of art. They let scientists study how solar storms affect life here on Earth. 
like our electronics, our communications. Some of the best views of Earth's auroras have been captured from the International Space Station. The space station passes near the north and south poles of our planet about once every 90 minutes. So if they pass by the poles when it's dark, the auroras are close enough to reach out and touch, although I wouldn't recommend them. NASA makes sure that the astronauts that work on the ISS are highly trained photographers. And artists down here on Earth are taking their photos and remixing them into creations that are enough to blow your mind. This celestial light show has been burning bright for perhaps billions of years, and it's more than just Earth's private art show. It's painted by an invisible force that surrounds our living planet, a force that catches wind from the sun and turns it into light. It gives humans a constant reminder of the beauty of the night sky, and it's right there in our planetary backyard. And that's pretty awesome. Thanks a lot for watching, everybody. Click. That gives a little bit more of a visceral idea um, about how the aurora formed. So you noticed in the ISS video, the video from the space station, you saw this green, the beautiful aurora, auroral green colors, but you also saw kind of a number of different layers that had many things going on in the atmosphere. So I'm, do you, what do you think about, think about if you look up in the night sky. Does our night sky, does it glow? Is there a, a glow in our atmosphere? So does our atmosphere glow, and if so, what color do you think it may glow? stop this now. All right. So most of you said, no, the atmosphere doesn't glow. Well, common experience would, would tell us that it doesn't really, because we don't, we don't see it glowing at night. But in fact, if we could see it, if our eyes were sensitive enough, and if there was small enough light pollution, like if it wasn't a bright moonlit night, and you didn't have a number of city lights polluting your view, then the sky would actually grow a very dull green. So this is actually what is, what is happening. And this is a phenomenon called air glow. It's one of the more interesting sort of lesser known atmospheric color phenomena. But you can see it in the space station videos. So here's an aurora happening near the poles. But look at this thin, small, outer green layer. This is the air glow. And this is the kind of color we might see if our eyes were sensitive enough and the light was, ambient lighting conditions were dark enough. So we would see a dull green in the sky. When you actually, sometimes if you are looking, you see this sometimes if you are looking at something very, very bright. Um, specifically if you're by a pool, let's say, which is glowing blue because it has light illuminating it. Look at the pool, let your eyes adjust for a bit, 
and look up at the sky. You'll see kind of a complementary color effect going on, but sometimes, very, very dimly, you can see this greenish glow. And that's because it's actually there. So what causes it? It's a little bit similar to aurora, but um, it's not quite the same phenomenon. It's not interaction of these particular solar wind particles coming in at the poles, but air glow happens all around the globe, basically, and it has to do with transitions happening in the sort of 80 to 100 kilometer altitude level in the atmosphere that have to do with oxygen, sodium, and hydroxyl. So each of these different kinds of atomic species are involved in green air glow and red air glow. There is a small blue one, but we won't talk about that. So essentially at around 91 and 95 kilometers, atomic oxygen, by some process, loses energy. Electrons hop down a very specific level, which releases a photon of a certain wavelength in the red or in the green, depending on which we're talking about in terms of these bands. So what's happening is electrons are becoming de-excited at these high levels of the atmosphere, spitting out photons of corresponding colors. This is typically the structure of altitude with the air glow. You get these green sort of air glows around 100 miles up. And then you have even higher than that. Sometimes you'll see the space station, that green bubble. And then sometimes you'll see red above it. That's the red air glow. And then even higher than that, we have a UV air glow, which we don't see. But if we could, it would be purplish. What does that actually look like? Well, it looks like this. So this is a video from the space station. Here's the green air glow here, and then you'll see the red air glow starting to appear at the higher altitude level. So our atmosphere does indeed glow and emit its own light. And uh, the flashes that you're seeing on Earth are lightning. That is the air glow. Okay. So I think we're going to take a break now. We will stop with the atmospheric phenomena. It's 9.23. Uh, we can come back at 9.45 at which point we'll be getting into the interference of light waves. Ah. We are not going back to the beginning. So now we'll get into 
a light phenomenon which can produce uh, very spectacular colors, similar to aurora, but is one of my favorites. Because this actual, this phenomenon interference, while it colors things like soap bubbles and thin films and oil slicks and iridescent shiny uh, substances, interference of light waves is also the reason for the existence of uh, my field, which is radio astronomy. So basically celestial sources um, basically emitting radio waves interfere with one another and through those interference patterns we can make out the structure of the source that has basically emitted these radio waves and we can see into the distant reaches of the universe right to the very edges of the universe to see quasars which are very bright galaxies with black holes at the center and sometimes have jets and um, a number of other incredible celestial phenomena. We'll get into talking a little bit about that at the very end of this lecture, but for now let's make sure we have a concrete basic understanding of interference of light waves. So to give you a basic review, this is from your first lecture. Hopefully you'll remember this and know this very, very well by now. Light is a form of energy which can behave as both a particle and a wave. And energy is just the ability to do work. Right? So in terms of behaving as a wave or a particle, when we're talking about interference of light waves, we're talking about behaving as a wave. And to remind you, there are two types of waves. There are transverse waves and longitudinal waves. When we're talking about electromagnetic radiation, you're talking about transverse waves. So essentially you have a wave-like structure, these kind of sine waves, and an electromagnetic wave is composed of both an electric and a magnetic field at orientations that are perpendicular to one another. So you have these two transverse waves. In blue you have the electric field, in red you have the magnetic field, and you'll notice they're perpendicular to one another, so they're at 90 degree angles to one another, with the direction of propagation of the wave being basically in that direction, extending, again, normal to the orientation of the fields. So we've seen this diagram several times by now. It's very simplified. What about light coming to us in every day? Does it simply behave like this? Well, this just shows one possible orientation of all of the orientations of light coming to us. So basically, a, any ray of light could have the electric and magnetic fields oriented in any particular way. And that is something we refer to as polarization. How the light wave is oriented in space. So what you're seeing in this particular diagram, remember that blue and the red electric and magnetic fields, they're perpendicular to one another. And if you have, you go along the line of propagation and trace essentially the path that is covered by these fields, 
you have something called the magnetic field vector. So it tells you, gives you the circle to tell you the sense in which the light wave is traveling, or the orientation or polarization of the light wave. It gets very complicated because there are different types of polarizations. You can have something that's linearly polarized, which is uh, basically on a plane. You can have things that are circularly polarized. We won't get into all of that now. What you simply need to know for this and for the color phenomena that we're going to study is that polarization has to do with how in space the wave is oriented. And you can actually change that by creating materials that are polarizers. They essentially force the wave to be oriented in a certain way. Hopefully you remember that we talked about polarization and polarizers earlier in the course. We talked about polarization, polarizing uh, lenses, sunglasses, and also camera lenses, which took off some of the highlights from different aspects. So basically all that polarized lenses are, all that any kind of polarizer is, is a diffraction grating. And a diffraction grating looks like this. It's a surface with jagged edges spaced in precise, very small amounts that cause light to refract off of it and bend in specific certain directions. So you have incoming white light, bounces off, refracts off the diffraction grating, and sends each wavelength of light in different directions. So you thereby control the orientation of light. You can block some wavelengths. You can allow others through. This is showing you just how sort of complicated some of this stuff can be. When I said that that electromagnetic field can have any orientation in space, when I say that I mean basically this group here. So here are a number of light waves. Some are oriented. They're oriented all about the circle basically, in many, many different ways. What's happening here is an unpolarized beam is being passed through a diffraction grating or a polarizer, and some of those wavelengths polarized in anything but the vertical direction are getting cut out. So this light passing through this grating essentially does not allow anything that is not in a vertical polarization to get and you can control all kinds of light phenomena with this. So how does this get back to our interference and understanding the colors that we get from interference patterns? Okay. This is Thomas Young. We've seen him before. Does anybody remember where? Which unit or with respect to which thing? Okay, we've, we saw him before with the eye. And he was one of those physicists who basically said that there are, uh, posited that there are three receptors, three color receptors in the eye, three types of cone cells, basically. So tri-color vision. Thomas Young also did one of the most important experiments in physics in 1801. And when you actually look at this experiment, it's deceptively simple. But 
In this experiment, he did wit what countless others could not do. A debate was basically raging still whether light was a particle or light was a wave. Young created this simple double slit diffraction experiment and proved conclusively that light does act as a wave. Let's see how. So in terms of interference, think about waves on the ocean or ripples in a pond. If you have ripples branching out in a pond, let's say you had two stones dropped into a pond beside one another, you'd see the ripples going forth and basically interfering with one another. This happens with light, and this can be actually shown. So here's a basic setup of the experiment. Young said, I know what will show, basically, what if, how, if light is a particle or light is a wave, which behavior is which. If I pass light through two very small slits, I should expect to see one distinct outcome if light behaves as a particle, and another distinct outcome if light behaves as a wave. So what would you expect? Just what would you expect from monochromatic light, so light of one color, pass through two slits and projected onto a screen if light behaved as a particle? Anyone want to volunteer? Where would you see the light? Focus like a laser? Well, what you'd expect, if you think of, think of particles as you know, point sources, if you had a number of point sources, a particle could go wa through one or the other slit, but you'd have probably a number of them going through one or the other, and it probably would give you these two lines. Right? It should give you light as those two lines. That's what should happen with particles. It's like people, if you have two doors and a stream of people, split and go through both doors, you'll have a stream of people on the other side. So it's the same thing with light as a particle. This is what is expected. This is what the result was. So instead of those two bands, we see a whole fringe of these interference patterns. Now how could particles possibly make that? And the answer is, we do know still that light behaves ba both as a wave and a particle, but what's happening in this particular experiment is light is passing through these two slits in wave fronts, like waves on the ocean, like ripples in a pond. They're rippling out, interfering with one another, sort of interlocking and creating these light and dark areas that, as far as you can project, creates an interference pattern of wave fronts which is a fringe, it's called a fringe, and has dark and light banding areas. So that's it. I mean, it's such a simple experiment to understand and see firsthand that light behaves as a wave. If it's still not kind of clicking entirely, we're going to show this in a little bit more detail. I'll show you what it actually looks like. So here's what's happening in the setup of the experiment. Here's Young's experiment, light source. The light source is passed through two slits. And because it's acting as a wave, waves go through 
The wave goes through both slits, creating new wave fronts, which create these dark and light areas. So what you notice here is these dark areas where the density of the lines is not, not uh, is low. So these bands. And you also notice bands where the density is very high. What's doing that? What's making it different? Well, what's making it different is, again, let's go back to the analogy of water waves. If you're traveling on a lake and a motorboat comes by and generates gigantic waves, if the wave crest hits another wave trough, it will buckle and fall over it. If waves, crests of waves hit other crests of waves, then the boat crest will be twice as high. It has to do with how the waves interact with each other, which is called superposition. It has to do with how these waves either add or subtract to create a final state. So where you have waves that are out of phase, which I'll explain in a moment, you have destructive interference. And where you have waves that are basically adding together and making the height of that peak much higher, you have constructive interference. So these are the constructive interference are the light areas. The destructive interference are your dark areas. The light is essentially, in this case, canceling itself out. Let's take a look at this applet, and I hope it will run on the computer with Java. Let's see, and it will, great. Okay, so this is your own simulator, uh, double slit experiment simulator, or single ripple tank. You can play with this at home sort of later on, but you can use two sources, and you can see what's happening with the two sources basically is, again, it's like ripples in a pond. Ripples are spreading out and having areas of constructive and destructive interference with one another. So you see these lines. This is some, there's constructive interference. Let's show you a 3D view of this. This is a sound wave, but you can also use visible light. So here's a visible light wave. And you can actually rotate this and see what's happening in all these areas. So this interference pattern of light waves permeates all of space with areas where the waves cancel each other out and areas where they boost each other up. And here's what's happening again. Just a slightly more simplified version showing you that schematic. You have the two wave fronts and along the lines, areas of constructive interference where they line up and areas of destructive interference in between where they don't line up, they cancel each other out. So you get the bright and dark alternating patterns. What causes this? So I mentioned that typically whether interference will be constructive or destructive depends on the phase of the wave. Do the waves add or do they subtract? 
Well, phase sounds like a fancy word, but what does it really mean? Phase simply means if the waves are in sync. So if you call a wave in, in phase with another wave, it just means that all the crests of that wave line up with all the crests of the other waves. All the troughs line up with all the troughs of the other waves. There is no phase difference. They are in phase. The peaks are aligned. So for out-of-phase waves, the peaks are not aligned. There is some phase difference there. You can keep shifting waves by any amount and get virtually any phase difference you want, but certain of them have specific effects. For example, if you were to take the peak of a wave and the trough of a wave and have them out of phase by 180 degrees, they would cancel each other out. And I'll show you what I mean. So with phase, you can talk about phase relations and the phase shift. When I'm speaking of the shift or the separation in alignment of the peaks of a wave, this is called the phase shift, and it's measured in degrees. So this particular red wave is phase shifted. It's ahead of the blue wave by 90 degrees. This is a phase shift of 90 degrees. It's the closeness expressed in degrees or in sometimes in radians, you'll see it's so pi over 4. If waves are overlapping or in phase, then they have no phase difference or they have 360 degrees phase difference because it's like a circle constantly going around. Okay. So if we have a crest with a trough opposite it, that is a 100 degrees phase difference. And this is what some phase differences look like. This is just to show you that you can have a number of different scenarios. So wave A leading wave B, wave B leading wave A. These two are both 90 degrees out of phase. In this case, you have 180 degrees out of phase. So think about if you were adding these curves. Mathematically, if you were adding these curves together, what would happen? You would get a straight line. And that would cancel out everything. And this is kind of the basic principle that things like noise cancellation headphones work with respect to. So we won't worry too much about phase. We're not going to go into uh, an intensive study of phase. Simply, what we want to know is two things can happen when waves interfere. The waves can basically add or they can subtract. So depending on their phase, these waves that are in phase will add together to produce a wave with the same phase but much greater amplitude, higher energy wave. They add. That is constructive interference. If you have your 180 degrees out of phase, when you put these two waves together, you have a standing wave that cancels itself out and gives you cancellation or destructive interference. And things like microphones. You're hearing that pounding because it's probably rubbing on my hair, but typically, if you've seen it in many lecture halls, the microphone will start to screech 
it's because, and, and if the teacher moves, basically, uh, the screeching stops. This is because of constructive and destructive interference. There are wave fronts basically being emitted, sound waves, and if you move to a certain angle, you'll get to a spot at which things will not interfere destructively. So this is just another way to say the same thing. Constructive interference, waves in phase, adding up amplitude, destructive, waves out of phase, canceling any kind of amplitude. So Young was uh, very meticulous in making a sketch of his experiment. This is his interference sketch from light source A and B. And you can see the regions of constructive interference labeled here as C, D, E, and F. And what these are going to show you, if you were to project that light on a screen, would be dark light, dark light, dark light, dark light, and so on. Why does that happen? So it's, we know it's interfering, but why is it interfering? Why is it when you have two sources, you get these dark and light bands? Well, what's the key to remember here is that these light rays are basically traveling different distances. So the wave fronts from slit one to the wall and the wave fronts from slit two to the wall is traveling a different path or distance. Okay, so distance traveled from slit one to the screen is going to be greater than the distance traveled from slit two to the screen. And this is what gives us, these different distances give us this interference pattern. Okay. We talked about polarization and um, we're talking now about interference. So typically, when we're talking about everyday light, light that we see is always unpolarized. It's existing in a number of different orientations. And it's typically out of phase. It has a variety of phases. You don't see coherent light. It's incoherent. Incoherent, okay. incoherent just means there's many different phases. So I've just said you don't see typically coherent light being spontaneously produced where all the waves are in sync, in phase. What do you think would be an example of a coherent light source? Mm -hmm. Well, so the coherent light source would be something like a laser. So lasers are basically light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. So they're stimulated such that the phase fronts are aligned. So let's look at this in a way that is a little bit more concrete here. What is light? What is light? Light is what? What is light? That's a good question. What is light? Isn't it an element? Um, light is brightness, I guess. We have auras. We all have auras. Which are light? Yes, they are. It lights up the room. It makes it 
not dark. What's the difference between blue light and red light? The color. It goes in your eyes and then you see stuff. They range from white to red to orange to green. It's like the chakras of your body. Can you see my aura? Uh, no, not particularly right now. Is it too bright out? It's very sunny out here today. Does that make it harder to see someone's aura? Mm, not necessarily. If I was to explain it to a blind person, Right. Yeah, it yeah. would be it would be the difference when uh, you see nothing whatsoever as a blind person, whereas I see things in front of me. To be fair, the question of what light is is not an easy one. For centuries, the greatest minds in science debated this issue. In the late 1600s, Newton proposed that light was a stream of particles or corpuscles. He proposed this in his treatise Optics. But at the, but at same, the same time, time a Dutch, Dutch physicist named Huygens proposed that light was a wave. And this and debate this raged on until it was settled by the experiment, experiment I've recreated today, Thomas Young's double slit experiment. To make sure I got the experiment right, I went to the original source. With the help of Brady Heron, I managed to get into the vault underneath the Royal Society in London. There I found Thomas Young's handwritten notes from 1803. I brought into the sunbeam a slip of a card, about one thirtieth of an inch in breadth, and observed its shadow, either on the wall or on other cards held at different distances, besides the fringes of colors on each side of the shadow. The shadow itself was divided by similar parallel fringes of smaller dimensions. This is an experiment so simple that you could make it at home, and yet so fiddly that I have never seen it before done with sunlight. I was thinking about doing it in a box, like a, like a fridge box. And you could take it out on the street. Taking it out on the street. Could I possibly interview you guys for about a minute? We're doing a science experiment. What I have here is an empty box. Mm -hmm. And this is a little eyepiece where we can look in. And this is a hole. And I'm going to place this slide above that hole. And if you look closely, you'll see that there's two openings very narrow opening side by side. It's a double slit. Now before we have a look, we need to tilt it towards the sun a little bit. So we want the sun to hit this double slit directly. What are we going to see on the bottom? Well, the obvious thing you think you're going to see is you can see two, two lines. Two lines on the bottom of the box. Two bright bands. Yeah. I think it'll be one one line for two. I can expect to see the whole box lit up. It'll probably be a kaleidoscope of some sort. A bunch of colors. Probably, yeah. Rainbow, different colors. There, have a look. You expected to see kind of one line. Is that what you see? No. I see dot. It's one circle. Well, there's one, one in the middle strongest, two either side. The two on the outside are multicolored. The one in the middle is just white. It's kind of a rainbow? The rainbow color as well. Quite a few colors and lots of little dots. But there are more dots appearing. I think I can even see more dots spreading along. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I can see tons of dots now. Not tons, but I can see dots spreading across that way. Yeah, definitely. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's incredible. And that's just nothing else apart from two slits. That's incredible. Well, all we're doing is we're putting a light through two very narrow slits side by side. How does this make any sense? There's some kind of principle involved there. The average person is not familiar with it. That's the only explanation. No, I'm really confused by it. I, I, I'd like to find out why. People were debating, is light a wave? Or is it made of particles? So what causes that? Well, if light were behaving as particles, you would expect them to go through each slit and just produce a bright spot underneath. So we would see two bright spots on the bottom of the box. 
But if light's behaving as waves, then the wave from one slit can interact with the waves from the other slit. I've got a demonstration here on a little pond where we can see this with water waves. I have two sources of ripples which travel out with circular wave fronts. Nothing particularly surprising there. But if I add a second source of ripples, then we start getting an interesting pattern. This pattern is created by the ripples from the two sources interacting with each other. Where they meet up peaks with peaks and troughs with troughs, the amplitude of the wave is increased. That's what we call constructive interference. But if the peak from one wave meets up with the trough from the other, then we get destructive interference and there's basically no wave there. And this is exactly what was happening with the light. When the light from one slit met up peaks with peaks and troughs with troughs, they constructively interfered and produced a bright spot. But if the trough from the wave from one slit met up with the peak of the wave from the other slit, they would destructively interfere and you wouldn't see any light there. It's light cancelling itself out. This is basically the same as like having two drops of water fall in a swimming pool. That's right. Get exactly the same pattern. And then they pattern. go and overlap. As this ripple over overlaps with those ripples, yeah. down the bottom, you get a series of, you get like a bright spot, and then a dark spot, and then a bright spot, then yep, a dark yep. spot, then a bright spot. Now there's a slight complication, which is that sunlight is composed of many different colors, and they have different wavelengths. So obviously they're going to meet up at slightly different points. And that's what caused the rainbowing effects as we go further from the central maximum. So you saw the ones to the right were slightly colored. Yeah, that's it's because the, the reds are going to meet up at different places than the blues. And that's all that makes the color differences is different wavelengths. Exactly. That's amazing. So the difference between so the red so and blue... So that red bin over there and the green, yeah. the green part, is just, I'm, I'm seeing it's that a different, it's just different, different wavelengths. Wavelength. And that's how we bring in all these beautiful colors all around us. Exactly. That's amazing. I'm, I'm amazed. Oh, good on you. Thanks, Ben. Hey, thank you. I have been enlightened. Literally. <laughs> <laughs>
is out of phase with the second wave, which is traveling a longer distance. And how those waves interact and add up and come to your eye determines what color you see. So with magenta, we have basically the green light being canceled out. Because of the phase relation of these two waves, green wavelengths disappear. They're sort of canceled out. So we see red and we see blue. And that comes into our eye and we see magenta. This is really what this is doing in the case of soap bubbles. In the case of things like oil slicks on pavement, there's a beautiful rainbow of colors in there. What does that have to do with? Which colors are where? Well, it has to do with the thickness of the oil slick. Just recall that, let's say we have this surface, oil and water, or let's say we have a pavement surface. Light comes in, bounces off one of the layers, and is reflected both from the top of the layer and the bottom of the layer. And the sum of that light coming out together determines what color you will see. This is something called iridescence. So we're talking about the interference of waves. Iridescence is just a special case of interference that is interference through multiple different layers or multiple different media. So we have interference being amplified by moving between different mediums. So you have two beams of light traveling different distances that eventually meet. Here's the incoming beam of light. It's white. Here is an outgoing beam. This is beam two and this is beam one. So which one has gone a longer distance? Yeah, two. Because one has basically just bounced off the surface of the oil. Two has penetrated to the oil, gone down to the second medium of the water, and bounced off that. So they're different dif distances. So if two had bounced off here, off of the film of the oil, the waves would still be in phase. Because it's traveled a longer distance, the phase is different. And what you notice here, here's your longer distance. Phase is very different, and that phase is a trough and a crest. They're canceling each other out. So certain wavelengths of light that are canceled will become invisible to you, and the remaining wavelengths are the colors that you see. So the extra distance traveled causes the wave to become waves to become out of phase, and that's destructive interference. Basically, in destructive interference, the wave is canceled out. You do not see that wavelength. Whereas in constructive interference, we see that wavelength. So if green light destructively interferes, as in the previous magenta example, all the wavelengths are green are canceled out, and we're left with red and blue, which sum to give us magenta. And this is why you have these beautiful, rich rainbow patterns, which are related to the thickness of the oil slick and how deeply different light 
beams are penetrating and reflecting from the surface. Okay. We have this quick video as well. Oops. Which I just want to show you before we talk about iridescence with feathers and then get finally on to our astronomy portion about interference. I want to show you how to color a transparent piece of plastic without adding anything to it. No dyes, paint, nothing except holes. But first we have to talk about light. Most people know that it's a form of electromagnetic radiation. But have you ever stopped to think about how strange that is? I mean, light is a combination of electric and magnetic fields. Electric fields, like the ones that make these balloons repel, and magnetic fields, like the ones that make these magnets attract. But how can you strip off the electric field from around charge and the magnetic field from around a magnet and combine those fields together so that they can propagate out through space at the speed of light? Well, the key is the electric and magnetic fields need to be continuously changing. And this is usually accomplished by wiggling some electrons. That creates these oscillating electric and magnetic fields that propagate out through space as an electromagnetic wave. So how big is a wavelength of visible light? Well, take a ruler and have a look at a millimeter. Imagine magnifying that millimeter so it's the size of a meter. Now divide that millimeter into a thousand. Or in other words, take a millimeter of a millimeter and then divide that in half. And that is the wavelength of green light. Now granted that is tiny, but my point is it's not that tiny. And nature has actually figured out a way to take advantage of the size of light. Have a look at this blue morpho butterfly. What's really neat about the blue morpho is, yeah, it has this really blue, iridescent, shiny wings. that nobody actually really knows why they, why you they are. You don't to attract a mate or something? The leading theory that I've read is actually to let predators know, like birds, that, hey, you know me, I'm really fast, and I move really well through the jungle, don't even bother. That beautiful, iridescent blue color isn't created by a pigment. No, the color of the blue morpho is created by the structure of its scales. If we were to zoom in on this butterfly, we'd see all these little sort of gratings and holes within these gratings that trap the light and reflect out this blue. If we just kind of look at it, direct into the light. So we've taken away the light that was bouncing off the front. Yeah, you can see that the blue goes away. And all you can see is really the background. In fact, that's because the, the wings are almost transparent. Without that light being able to reflect off of it, you don't get any blue. Scientists like Clint are trying to create similar structures to be used as security devices on banknotes, bank cards, and tickets. What you're looking at is just a thin, transparent piece of plastic, and we've punched little tiny holes. The holes are about 100 nanometers deep and 100 nanometers in diameter. Each little image that you see on there has about 500 million holes punched into it. And those holes create a three-dimensional kind of grating that allow for the light to reflect and reflect out that create those brilliant colors. The color is created in a similar way to the color of a soap film. If you carefully study a soap bubble, you'll find that you can't see all the colors of the rainbow in the soap film. All you can really see is 
cyan, magenta, and yellow. Well, the reason for that is, what the soap film is doing is it's actually removing colors from the light. So the full spectrum of visible light hits the film, but depending on the thickness of the soap layer, certain colors are removed. And so what we see is the spectrum of visible light minus a color that's been taken out. So for example, in order to see magenta, what we need to do is remove the green light from the spectrum. The light that bounces off the front surface will interfere with the light that bounces off the back surface of that soap film. So when it comes out, any light that's about 500 nanometers is removed from the light. And what we see is a mixture of the rest of the spectrum. So longer wavelengths than green and shorter wavelengths than green, together they make that beautiful magenta color. So what you want to look for is structures that are similar but can be compatible with manufacturing processes where, for example, a printing press process where you have a big roll of substrate it's going to come along and you've got a big press that's just going to stamp down and punch in those structures. But how could you create like nanoscale structures and punch them into a material? Isn't that nearly impossible? No, not at all. But it sounds like you're going to manufacture these tiny things and then they're not going to break off when you're stamping them. No, out. and that's you know, one thing everybody thinks is, um, you know, oh, well, they're small. And small things are fragile. Well, that's, that's just not the case. One of the th reasons that our, our structures can be strong is that it has a low aspect ratio, which means that the height to width is low. So a high aspect ratio, let's say, might be 10 to 1. So it's long and skinny. And that is a weak structure. Ideally, you want a structure that's 1 to 1 or maybe 1 to 2. And what we do is we create structures that are you know, 200 nanometers wide and maybe 300-400 nanometers tall. And we use that to punch in. And those structures are really, really strong. For the moment, Australian bills are made of plastic, and they have this little transparent window in them to stop counterfeiters. But perhaps in future, they'll have hundreds of millions of tiny nanoscale holes instead. The Australians were the ones that you know, invented the polymer banknote. So would you be looking to get your technology in there? Have you been in dialogue with the Australians? I cannot comment on that. <laughs>
Interference is a beautiful thing in terms of all of the things that it's capable of showing us. Colors and striking gems and parts of nature. And the last thing that I want to talk about, which deals with interference, is radio astronomy. So what is radio astronomy? Radio astronomy is simply astronomy where we are detecting radio signals. So those are the longer wavelength signals in the electromagnetic spectrum. Remember that visible light is from about 400 to 700 nanometers. That's very, very small, smaller than you can see. Radio waves are in the centimeter and millimeter wave, uh, wavelength range. And some of the most distant objects in the universe are sending us, essentially, radio wave signals. In order to detect these, we build radio telescopes. So we build powerful antennas that can collect the electromagnetic radio radiation. So coming from a faraway source, let's say a galaxy, a distant galaxy, a quasar, a black hole, some other structure of interest. As we saw before, the light's going to be coming in many different directions with many different phases. Now sometimes, because of the physical processes happening in a star or in a quasar, the light, the radio wave coming to you will be directed or polarized in a certain kind of way. And this is usually in a circular kind of polarization. But when you get these signals from these very distant objects, they're all scrambled up. We need to use radio telescopes, often in a network, in a series across the globe, to decode these signals and put together a picture of what the structure of the object we're looking at is. So here is our visible light, which I've just mentioned. Here are the radio waves. They're much larger. They're larger than microwaves. Long wavelength radiation. So from a distant galaxy, you have incident radio waves caught by a dish. A lot of radio dishes tend to be about 20, some of the larger ones are 25 meters across. They're very, very large um, telescopes. And it's these kind of telescopes you would see in a lot of popular movies, like the Arecibo telescope, the telescope that was in uh, all the telescopes in the movie Contact, those are radio telescopes. And radio telescopes can do a lot when you put them together. So think of interference. Think about when you have more sources and more level of detail. Basically, with radio waves, you can link together a number of radio telescopes. This is a process called VLBI. It's very long baseline interferometry. So that's a mouthful. But what's happening is, instead of just having one dish, which is essentially the diameter of that dish, you can network together dishes all along the globe to synthesize a dish which is essentially the size of Earth. And with all of that radio wave collecting power, you can see to the most distant reaches of the universe. Okay, so typically, for my, um, when I was doing my master's, 
we looked at radio waves in the X band, which is the frequency band of 8.4 gigahertz. And we won't get into what these things are, but these are some slides from some of my master's research. But I just wanted to show you how interference from distant sources looks to us and how we can make some sense out of it. So again, this is the VLA, which is the very large array. This is in New Mexico. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's spectacular. You drive out in the desert, often there's dust storms and wandering cows sort of moving down the road, but you have 27 networked radio telescopes together on movable tracks. These can be rearranged and pushed in certain configurations so that you can get better interference patterns from the objects that you're studying. So what do those objects look like? So here's an object of interest in the optical range. So that's what we visibly see. These are our 400 to 700 nanometer wavelengths. And this is what you get, which is actually very hard to see, unfortunately, on this particular screen in the radio. So you have waves interfering, and you get interference signals, just like those interference patterns or fringes that we saw before. So these radio waves coming to us, interfering, being recombined, correlated in these dishes, give us eventually a picture of the object that we're, no that we're looking at. And it's not a visible picture, it's a picture that tells us how much energy the object has, or different physical properties of that particular object. So when I talked about VLBI, this is a technique called interferometry. It just means linking up a bunch of telescopes to get a better resolution image. And you can see that a single dish might give you the overall structure of the galaxy, whereas two dishes brought together will give you more detailed structures, and you add more and more dishes, and you get more and more detailed structures. This was my computer screen, and here's here is your radio wave interference. So I was studying a quasar, which was, has a black hole in the center, and it's a very, very distant object at the edge of the universe, essentially. Um, and this was an unprocessed radio wave first fringes data picture of this object. It looks pretty messy. Ultimately, when you process that, you refine it, you can learn a lot about the source that you're looking at. And what we end up looking at is this particular source was that one here. This one here sorry, is a number of sources like this. So you can map the intensity, you can map the speed they're going at, where they are, how the dynamics change, how different pieces in here move. This is a quasar, this picture that you see here. This particular source at center is the black hole, and these two jets, well, you'll only see one because of the orientation, but this is one of the jets cleaned up in the radio image, all from an interference pattern. So it's, it's interesting to take a look at. And there it is again with the black hole labeled and the superluminal jet. So that's really to say that interference is all around you, color is all around you, all of the light 
phenomena that we talked about in this course is all around you every day. And hopefully you have a little bit of a better perspective now on how color works, why we see what we see, and how you can continue to be aware of it and appreciate color in, in your everyday life. So that is the course, and thank you. It's been a pleasure to teach you. Okay. And uh, next class, we'll have the last class. It will be an exam review. So think of some questions, uh, bring some questions, and I'll be happy to go over those with you. And that'll be Wednesday. Okay. Have a good Easter weekend. <laughs>